Good morning. Go ahead and make your way to be seated. Looks like we have a, a fairly decent crowd for it being the worst day of the year. Uh, the government robbed us of an hour of our sleep last night, so it's a little bit sad. And I gotta say, I always have historically said there's a test to know if you're over 45 years old or under 45 years old. It's because everybody I know over 45 years old feels the need to remind every person they see that the clocks are going forward an hour. And all of us who are under 45 know that your phone just changes the time. You know, I got in my car this morning and there's a chip that it came with and it just knew it was daylight saving time. And you know, maybe my stove I'll have to change in the next couple of weeks at some point. But I did not need a reminder. But I stand corrected because when I came to church this morning, I was looking forward to Coda being here because there's like 50 wheels in this room and there's only five doors. And he's created this argument, which I guess he hasn't created, of whether or not there's more wheels or doors in the world. So if you get distracted, you think my sermon is boring, just start thinking on whether or not you think there's more wheels in the world or doors. But there's five doors and there's like wheels on everything in here. And I was looking forward to him, and I go to Jason, I'm like, where's Coda? I need to point out all the wheels in this room. And he said, oh, he forgot it was daylight saving time and overslept. And I'm like, no, not only do I not going to have this wheel conversation, but he goes against my entire argument that you don't need to tell people about the change in time, because I guess you do. So if, if you show up an hour late today, you might miss the whole thing, because it's me up here this morning. So, uh, But we're going through 1 Corinthians, uh, one of my top, all, all scriptures inspired by God, but in my opinion, some are better reads than others that I find interesting. First Corinthians is kind of one of those top, top tier books that I enjoy going through. We're about halfway through. I know we went through nine last week because I was sick, but we're going to go through First Corinthians eight. Uh, but it kind of going through First Corinthians, it's written around 50 AD in that time frame, and Christ ascends somewhere in the time frame of 33, 31 AD. People kind of argue it. So you need to understand this is the early days of the New Testament church. It's been around 20 years. It's, it's being early shaped into an entity that is now 2,000 years old. And it kind of reminds me of a lot of things in American history. You know, I'm a big food guy. I love food. I work in a restaurant. When I'm not working in a restaurant, I'm thinking about restaurants I can go to. And a lot of times, if you guys have iPhones, they now like suggest where you're going when you get in the car. Like, hey, are, are you going to work right now? Let me, it's 17 minutes to get to work. My phone frequently will say, like, when I get in the car, eight minutes to El Ranchero. Or it is 12 minutes from this coffee shop. And I'm like, man, my, my phone knows me so well that it's suggesting restaurants to go to when I get in the car. But one famous restaurateur that might be the biggest restaurateur there ever been is a man, and I've got a picture of him if you want to pull up the next slide. Uh, anybody, when you see the slide, you know who this is. You certainly know the work he has performed to the world. Uh, so I've got his initials there as a hint. It's Ray Kroc. Have any of you ever heard of Ray Kroc by chance? A couple people have heard of Ray Kroc. Man, we're, we're doing a good job. So Ray Kroc was uh, a World War I and World War II veteran. When he, the war ends, he gets a job for Prince, Prince 
uh, Industries, which sells a bunch of different products, and he becomes a traveling salesman. Uh, he actually, in the early 50s, late 40s, sold milkshake mixers, would drive across America, show up to your, your diner or you know, your, your truck stop, and try to sell a milkshake mixer to the guy who ran the shop, which seems like a terrible job, not something I would want to do. And he did it for a long time. And through that, he, he meets two men, uh, Rich and Norm McDonald. And they run a restaurant in San Bernardino, California. He goes to it trying to sell his milkshake mixers. And they have a sign on their door that says, if you don't get your food in five minutes from you ordering it, your whole meal is free. And that is a concept in the 50s. Fast food has not been thought of. And he orders a burger, a fries, a Coke, gets it all within a couple minutes of him ordering it. It's hot, it's fresh, it's made to order. It changes his life. He goes and he talks to the McDonald's brothers and says, we've got to like, spread this across America. You know, and that, that restaurant was McDonald's, obviously. That's the last name of the people who, who founded it. And today... You know, there's over 30,000 McDonald's. They're in 110 countries. More people can recognize the golden arches than can recognize the cross. So that's how influential Ray Kroc was as a person. But the thing that made him so influential is he was very, like, stubborn and hard in his beliefs. When he brought McDonald's to Illinois, which is where he was from, so the McDonald's was the original location, he started franchising it with the McDonald's brothers in Illinois, and it would be an individual ownership. You owned your McDonald's, the guy in the next town owned his McDonald's, and when there was 10 to 15 locations throughout the Midwest, he realized just how difficult it was to get all the McDonald's on the same page. He would go to some McDonald's and it's supposed to be a friend, like a family friendly place and they've got pinball machines, they've got cigarette stands that they're selling cigarettes out of. He goes to some McDonald's, they're selling fried chicken, they're selling biscuits and this is not the identity that he wants to have for McDonald's. And so he has a choice. He can allow these individual owners to continue to do things how they want to do them, or he can say, this is the way McDonald's ought to be. And so he did something that people still think is like a bad business tactic. I kind of think it's, it's smart. He decided to buy the land that the McDonald's was on and then sell the McDonald's building to the owner. But at the end of the day, the land was his. And so he said, okay, if you don't want to do things the McDonald's way, I own the land that your building is on. I'll just demolish it. It's my land. And because of that, you can go to a McDonald's in Moscow, Russia, if it's still open. I think they closed last week. Or you can go to a McDonald's in Ecuador. Or you can go to a McDonald's in Albuquerque. And if you order a Big Mac, you're going to get the same thing now at all of those locations. Consistency, because one man had the tenacity of saying, this is the McDonald's way, this is how we are going to do business, and if you aren't gonna do business this way, 
I'll, I'll just demolish your whole building and put up another McDonald's, give it to somebody else. And that's kind of similar to Paul. I'm not calling Ray Kroc a, a biblical man. He did a lot of shady things. He kind of forced the McDonald's brothers out of McDonald's. And when you think about it, they have 30,000 locations and they've sold billions of burgers. The McDonald's brothers got $1 million each for the whole company. Ray Kroc kind of bought them out, which is, you know, but... Because of him, they went from one location in San Bernardino, California, to something more popular in the world, to the cross. And that's something that kind of Paul is doing. He is early days of Christianity. There's churches that he's been through on these mission trips. And he's seen, oh, this church is doing things this way. This church is doing things that way. And in this particular book of Corinthians, he's writing to the church in Corinth and he is saying, this is the way Christianity is. Here's what you were doing wrong. Here's what you're doing right. And we can either all, nobody speak up and we all do things our own way and we can die out as a group of people who follow Christ or we can properly do the Great Commission and we can do things the New Testament Christ way. And that's what the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, it's all about. It is Paul shaping the church into the way it ought to be. And we've talked about different topics so far going throughout 1 Corinthians. Matt did a great job talking about the many chapters of sexuality. I'm so glad we're kind of past that in 1 Corinthians because it's a lot of awkward conversations I don't want to have. And I'm glad I didn't have to preach on them. But Matt did a good job. I will never forget that we're running together and you want to do this long term. That was, that was a good one. Uh, but now we're moving on to a different topic. And it's food offered to idols. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to read 1 Corinthians 8 together. We're going to pray and we're going to kind of dive into what the, the passage of Scripture is talking about here. So 1 Corinthians 8, we're just going to read the whole thing together. It's fairly short. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as it ought to know it. But if anyone loves God... He is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols. Then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we don't eat it, and we are no better off if we do eat it. Be careful that this right of yours is no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, The one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against your brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Holy Father, we just thank you for 
1 Corinthians, we thank you for Paul. We thank you of how you used him and spoke through him. Uh, Just pray that as we go through this passage of scripture, we would be exposed to idols in our own hearts and also be able to identify ways that, you know, we're seeing idols in other people's hearts and how we properly address that. I just pray that me as a human, I understand I'm I'm only capable to fail, so I would ask you to help me not to fail and to speak your words and speak through you and fill me with your Holy Spirit as I I try to go through this passage of Scripture. In your name, amen. Okay, so we've got in this passage of Scripture of 1 Corinthians 8, essentially there's three groups of people. And, And Paul, similar to what happened to Jesus in his letter, has been asked the question, how do you feel about food being offered to idols? We've kind of discussed and we know that Corinth is a major hub for the Greek goddess of Aphrodite. And people in society in that town would come there and they would offer up their sacrifice to Aphrodite. And it would frequently be a food sacrifice. And what would happen to the food is the person who is sacrificing the food would eat some. And then the priest for the temple of Aphrodite would eat some. And then there would be some left over. And when you have tons and tons of people showing up, offering their sacrifice to the goddess of Aphrodite, you get a buildup of food that's uneaten. And so these temples would open up, you know, kind of restaurants and stores around their temple, and they would sell the remaining food so it just wouldn't go to waste. And you could go and kind of at a discount rate, you could buy this food that's been offered to idols, and it's obviously at the time a hot topic of controversy. Today, I don't think I've ever been to Walmart and been there and it said idol meat, you know, $1 off. You know, I am aware that this is not a conversation that you regularly have in your life. Oh my goodness, have you seen Becky? She was eating idol meat at the restaurant. But this, there's topics like this today that are hot topics all the time. So Paul gets asked, what's your opinion on this? You know, we've got three groups of people. We've got some people who are offering meat to idols. And then we've got another group of people who are eating meat, offering to idols. And we have a third group of people who are saying offering food to idols and then eating the meat are wrong. So that's the three groups of people. And I, I kind of want to address all three uh, in this passage of Scripture. So starting off is the people who are offering food to idols. And we're not doing that, but I promise you, you probably have a lot of idols in your life that are less direct. I think about Ecuador as a place I go all the time. We're recruiting people, getting a group of names together to, to go on a trip this summer to Ecuador. And whereas you know our idols in our life are less identifiable to broader society, to them, they're very direct idols. One of the most famous idols in the community that we serve in is called the Lord of the Earthquake. And so they believe there's a God who uh, is inside of a volcano that's really close by, and he controls when the volcano erupts, he controls when earthquakes happen that cause the volcanoes to erupt, and once a year, and we've not ever been there when this is happening, but there's a giant festival where they have this idol that's normally inside this church where they parade it around the city and everybody prays to it and bows to it and you know, has a big party for the Lord of the Earthquake. And I'd imagine at that particular event, you could probably buy some idol meat 
at that particular event. Uh, and this, when I go to Ecuador, they, they often say there's Bible experts in town. And I am not a Bible expert, but you need to understand that's a great recruiting tool to people who live in ex- Ecuador to say that the guys that are here are experts in the Bible, which for me, who already hates public speaking, the thought of everybody thinking I'm a Bible expert and coming and asking me questions is the most terrifying thing in the world. But that would work. All day long, we'd go into a village, and the, the missionaries that were there and the translators that were there would go around the community and say, hey, tonight we're having a service, and there's Bible experts in town. Come with all of your questions to ask these Bible experts. And what's cool about that is in the early days, I had my dad with me, who like, was a Bible expert, has a doctorate in theology. And me, I graduated high school. I have never studied scripture in any type of seminary setting. I've just you know, been a Christian most of my life and have studied the Bible, but I'm not an expert. And one of the questions I got asked the first trip, my dad was no longer with me, and I was the sole Bible expert, it was, hey, we have this festival that happens once a year, and they said the name of a person in the crowd, Bob, I'm going to say, his name was not Bob, I don't remember what his name was, he goes to these festivals because there's really good food, there's really good drink, it's a big party. How do you feel about Bob going to this party? He doesn't believe in the Lord of the Earthquake, but it's a, it's a killer party, apparently. How do you feel about that? And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not a Bible expert, but by golly, I do remember 1 Corinthians 8. So we, we went through this passage of Scripture, and I was very thankful for it. So, so first, we've got people offering food to idols. So let's see what, what the Bible has to say about idols. Most of these will be common scriptures that you've heard of. Uh, but when Moses frees the Israelites from Egypt, he brings them across the Red Sea. And one of the first places they go shortly after is Mount Sinai. Moses climbs the mountain and speaks with God directly. And he gives a list of commandments. And if, if I'm God and I want to give a list of commandments Probably the first couple I would give, and I'm not saying there's a hierarchy necessarily to the Ten Commandments, but the first couple I would give probably would be pretty darn important ones. So let's look at Exodus 20, uh, and let's read verses 5 through 6 here. Or sorry, 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens, above or on the earth, below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on to the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is commandments one and two, and it is all about whether God should be first in your life or he should take a later place in your life. And it says here, you know, I'm a, I'm a jealous God. Do not bow down and worship other gods and do not create idols that you bow down to and worship. And while this is going on, unironically, Moses is alone on top of this mountain, and his brother Aaron is in charge of the group of the Israelites. And you would think, like, 
dude, they just watched like the water turn into blood. They've watched a large famine. They've seen firstborn children die. They've escaped out of Egypt. They literally watched a whole sea part. They've walked across on dry land. They've been led by you know, a cloud, a pillar of fire. They've seen like a rock get hit and like food come out. They've seen manna fall from heaven. These are people who have firsthand witnessed the power of Yahweh, their God. And while God is giving this commandment, you see later on what's going on with them in Exodus 32, 1 through 8. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it in an image of a calf. Then he said, Israel, are you, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. So the people took off their gold ring. Oh, I need to hit the next slide. Early in the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Uh, I don't know if any of you have kids. My kids aren't here. I'm not going to pick them as a bad example. So I'm going to go to the next thing. That's my puppy. I have a, a puppy who's like 14 weeks old right now. And my puppy has been instructed to go potty outside. Simple instruction. You know, I take him out once an hour Literally once an hour, I go out in the freezing cold, and I stand with this dog who wants to run away every time I take him out, just so he learns to go potty outside. But the second I'm working on a sermon, or I'm going to use the restroom or take a shower, and he sees, oh, no one is watching me, I'm going to go and go potty in the house. That is his first thought every time. And you see this, God has given Moses these commandments, and the very first chance they say, hey, Moses has been gone a while. I don't know when he's coming back. The first thing they do is build up these idols for themselves. That's just prevalent in our lives. We don't have a, a golden calf that we worship and say, this is the God of my life. But certainly there are idols in our life. I've, I kind of find it ironic how many of you that have an iPhone get a text every Sunday morning that shows you how many hours you've spent on your iPhone? I think it's, it's appropriate that I get that text every week, like 15 minutes before church starts. And I hear these people saying, I don't have time to read my Bible, or I'm too busy to go to church. And then every Sunday morning when I'm here trying to set up, I hear, bzz, bzz, and I'm like, oh, somebody's getting a hold of me. 
you were on your iPhone seven hours a day this week. And you're like, dang, maybe this is an idol in my life. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. And then I, I feel convicted. I'm like, I want to be on my phone less this week. That's my goal. I'm going to make this less of an idol. And then I don't think about it for seven days. And then every, you know, the next Sunday morning, I'm setting up. Bzz, bzz, eight minutes and 37 minutes, or eight hours and 37 minutes, you were on your iPhone. Maybe your guys' number is like an hour and you're better than me, but my number is usually like between five and eight hours a day of phone activity, which I, I watch a lot of YouTube, so that's very believable. Yeah, so for you, it, you know, it may be your phone, it may be social media, it may be technology that you're putting first in your life. It, for others, it, it may be sports. You know, what, what's the thing you spend your time thinking about, talking about, if, if that's more than it is God, it's likely that it's an idol. And it's easy to talk about these big-time idols, but there are sometimes that God thinks that God has placed in your life, you make an idol out of it. So first we're going to look at a story in First Kings, and then we're going to talk about idols that may be even brought to you by God that were supposed to be good, and you've turned them into an idol, something that's bad. But first, let's look at 1 Kings 18, verses 20 and 21. It's a pretty famous passage of Scripture. It says, So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. So we see here King Ahab, he has 450 prophets of an idol, Baal. And Elijah makes this proposal, you know, there's only one. These two gods conflict with one another. They can't both be real. They can't both be God and conflict. Let's see which one is real. You have 450 of your prophets of Baal, and I've got me. Let's go on top of a mountain, and let's sacrifice to our gods, and let's see which one burns up the offering and which one doesn't. And 450 people, they, they try all day, they try all night, they cut themselves, they scream, they chant, and nothing happens. And then Elijah goes up, and he pours water all over his sacrifice, and God takes it up. It's just another shining example of the obvious, you know, idols that you have in your life. But ours are typically more indirect. Like I've talked about, my, my iPhone can sometimes be an idol in my life. You know, there are nights where I've gone to work all day and I go home and I haven't studied my Bible yet, but I'm stuck watching some random Jubilee video that turns into another video that turns into another video, and then I've fallen asleep with my iPhone on and I've, I've never read my Bible. And then sometimes there are things that I think are good. You know, I believe that God put my wife in my life. I believe that God gave me my children but there are times that I put my wife or I put my children above God. And there are people that you're going to talk to that would disagree with you on that. And, you know, your spouse should be number one in your life. Your, your kids should be number one in your life. God brought you these things. How can they be sinful? And we see passages of scripture that kind of directly goes against that coming up here in Numbers. A good story of the, the same Israelites, we've got Moses, and they've been sinning against God. And God sends these serpents into their lives, snakes, if you will. And they're biting people, and people are dying of the venom. 
And Moses goes on behalf of the Israelites and talks to God and says, Lord, there are these snakes that you have sent, and they are causing all of this evil against us. What can you do about it? And so it says, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many of the Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. Then anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake, mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. God has brought this bronze pole, commanded Moses to to wrap a serpent around it, and anybody who gets bit by this snake uh, can look at it and, and be healed. This is something from God. You know, this is not something that in and of itself is an idol. It's a good thing, the same way that your spouse can be a good thing. Your spouse can be brought to you by God. Your kids are brought to you by God. But you can make those things an idol whenever you're not putting God ahead of them. And we see here this thing that's brought by God and is a good thing, and we kind of see what happens later, uh, what happens to it. And for those of you who haven't heard this story, whenever you see an ambulance, uh, if you look at the next slide, it's pretty famous. Almost every ambulance I've seen, every hospital I've seen has this as their design today, and it's, it's the bronze pole with a snake wrapped around it. So whenever you see that, you can think about how God healed people of their illness through something. And then you can also think of how the people of Israel changed that. And we see that in 2 Kings 18. It says, in the third year of Israel's king Hoshea, son of Elah, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, became king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His, no- his mother's name was Abbe, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, shattered the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He removed the high places, shattered the sake. Oh, I did that twice, darn it. I'm never any good at making these things. Uh, he broke into pieces. <laughs> he broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made. For until then, the Israelites were burning incenses to it. It was called Nehushtan. So we've got this thing brought to the people by God. And what does God then command the king of Judah to do? Tear down these places. They're not using them for my glory anymore. In fact, this thing that I created, this good thing I brought into their life to heal them, they're they're burning incense to it. They're worshiping it. So if you're sitting here thinking like, oh, this thing that's brought to me by God can consume my life. It's a good thing. You can make that thing an idol. So think about your life and how do you know if something in your life has, has become an idol? And we talk about this all the time on the next slide is, you know, what are you spending your time on? How do you use your talents? How do you spend your treasures? What are you using for your testimonies? For me, I've talked to you guys. I've spent seven hours a day almost on my iPhone. Uh, for you, you may be spending seven, eight hours a day to something that maybe could glorify God if you used it to use God first, or maybe it's an idol in your life. So take a look at your day. Maybe even spend a week and just write down, hey, from 9 to 10, I did this. From 10 to 11, I did this. Look at your life. See, is is something taking place over God? Uh, 
Secondly is how to use your talents. I always find it funny, all these people who are incredibly talented at something in the secular world, and then the second they're asked to do that thing for God, they're like, no, no way, Why? I'm too busy, I can't do that. Like, for me, I run a restaurant, and it would almost feel unnatural for us to have like a barbecue after church, and for me to be like, nah, I'm not gonna cook, nah, that's not for me. I, I only use that talent to you know, pay all my bills and put me in the house that I live in and pay for my cars. But if you want me to use that for God, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. And you think like, duh, you should use your talents to honor the Lord. But you see that all the time. I, I only use my talents to benefit me. It's probably an idol in your life, you know. And I, some things don't even require talent, you know. We, we clean the toilets here in the morning. I don't, but people clean the toilets here in the morning. That don't even take talent. And all you got to do is be willing to, to serve God. Yeah, Garrett here, he, he can barely wash the dishes at Longhorn, but he comes here and he cleans almost every week. So. <laughs> the second, or the third thing is, what are you spending your treasure on? Everything just about costs money. There are very few things. Even if the hobby's free, you find ways to spend money on, on your hobbies. And there's nothing wrong with having hobbies. There's nothing wrong with spending on things that you, you, know, you love. I, I'm very excited. I bought, a, I bought a kayak here a couple months ago. And even though the lake was still halfway frozen, I had to get on it. And I, I, in February, it was my birthday. I'm allowed to do what I want on my birthday. I load up my kayak. I go fishing. And all the good spots are still frozen over. I caught nothing. But fishing is like a hobby you can do for free in theory. You know, There's a million fishing poles. You can borrow one. You can go and fish. And it'll cost you nothing. And here I am spending my treasures on it. And for me, fishing's not an idol. It's something I do passively. It's something I enjoy to do. But it can quickly become an idol in your life. What are you spending your treasures on? I, I hear people all the time, I, I can't give to God, but by golly, once, once the newest video game comes out, I'm going to pre-order it. I'm going to get the super mega deluxe $200 version of the game, which when I was a kid, you just bought the game, and that was all that came with it. Now anymore, I go to pre-order a game. They're like, do you want the basic $50 version, or do you want the $300 super ultra cool mega version of the game? And, you know, these people all the time say, I can't, I can't tithe, but they got the super mega ultra version of every video game that comes out. And then the fourth is, what are you using as your testimonies? What are you talking to people in your circle of friends about? I've shared a story in Ecuador, and you know, when I was in the Marines, I, I discovered uh, Icy Hot for the first time. And Icy Hot has had a positive impact on my life because I am on my feet all day, and I get sore, I get tired, and you know, they have like an Icy Hot rub you can use, and I just rub it on my joints at the end of the day, and it's as if I am healed miraculously by a bronze pole with a serpent on it. And all the time, I hear someone at work, I hear someone at a sporting event, ah, oh, just getting old, my knees hurt. I'm like, dude, have you, have you tried Icy Hot, man? You gotta try some Icy Hot. I've become a, a prophet of Red Bull lately as well. I, I show up in the morning and I'm tired and it's 8 a.m. and I know I'm about to be working all day long and hard and someone brings me a Red Bull, and I'm like, this is a gift from the Lord that you have brought me this Red Bull. And anytime someone's tired, I'm like, hey, hey, I got extra Red Bulls in the back if you want one. You know, that's my testimony. 
I'm, I'm a prophet for Red Bull at work, and I have been a prophet for Icy Hot. And it's okay to, to talk about those things, but how much time are you telling other people about the person who saved you for eternity? If you're doing those things, if you're a prophet for those more than you're a prophet for God, those things in your life, whether they're direct or not, are probably an idol. So as you're going through your week, think, how am I spending my time? What am I using my talents on? You know, how am I spending my treasure? And what am I using as my testimonies? And if, if you've got a list of a bunch of things that, that aren't God, that's an idol in your life. That's the first group of people. And, you know, we read this passage of scripture through 1 Corinthians 8, and we think, oh, well, you know, we're not the ones offering food to idols, but you, you probably are without realizing it. So let's take a look at the second group of people. Um, second group of people are people who say, I have the knowledge and I know that idols aren't real and I feel morally unconvicted by getting a great deal on me. You know, there's a, a famous hat that I've always thought about getting. And if you've seen the Make America Great Again hat, there's one that says make brisket $1.99 a pound again. And that's, that's a hat that I want. And, you know, I could see if there was some really good, like, idle brisket and it's a really good deal, I can see myself saying, I know that idols aren't real. I know that this food actually isn't for an idol. And I could see myself kind of morally excusing the activity of purchasing this really good idol meat in my life. Uh, and we see Paul talk about this kind of over and over again in different passages throughout Scripture. We see him saying, you know, it, whether or not you do it or not it makes no difference in the world, but if it's a stumbling block for someone else, then it's sinful. You, you see that again here in Romans 14, uh, 13 through 18. It says, Therefore, let us no longer judge one another, Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat, someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. Paul is saying there, there are things in the world, and in this particular example, he's talking about clean and unclean foods, but there's a ton of examples in modern day society of it is not a sin necessarily in and of itself to do this thing. But it is a sin if someone has their walk with God hindered by you being an example in their life and they perceive it as sinful to be doing that thing. I'm, in modern society, the, the best thing I can think of over the last two years is, is wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And my personal opinion, this is not a biblical belief, it's my personal opinion, you know, a virus is so small you can't see it. And my mask is typically made out of a t-shirt that I've put over my face. And to me, that feels like if I threw a golf ball at a volleyball net, you know, the golf ball is probably still going to go through it. You know, 
I didn't personally enjoy wearing a mask, and I didn't think that it helped out too much. We all got COVID anyways. But I know there's people in my life that see that there's a law in place that we should be wearing a mask, and they see me choosing whether or not to wear a mask, and they're saying, wow, this person's a Christian. This is someone who's supposed to be following God, and here he is not wearing a mask. Could that be a stumbling block that gives Christianity a bad name? Absolutely, I believe that. And absolutely, I believe I'm not necessarily sinning whether I wear a mask or not, except for the times when, you know, the law says to do it. But that's, that's a perfect modern-day example. Drinking, you know, recreational drinking when you're not getting drunk, I have not necessarily have any conviction-level beliefs on whether or not having a glass of alcohol is sinful or not. But you want to know what I know for sure is 100% sinful? I'm going on a trip to April. I'm going fishing with a couple of my friends down in South Carolina. And I got a buddy who's been my best friend since the day I joined the Marines. His name's Shane Richardson. And for a very long time, he was a very strong alcoholic. Uh, after we got back from Afghanistan, he, he like almost died. He drank so much from alcohol poisoning. And it might not be sinful if I want to, at my house with my wife, share a glass of wine and we're by ourselves. But it's 100% would be sinful if I'm on this trip with my friend who struggles with alcohol and say, hey, let's have a drink together. That's sinful, whether or not the activity is, because it's going to be with someone who is a stumbling block, it is still sinful. Uh, another example I can think of, and, and this may be slightly controversial, is you know a lot of people in America nowadays have tattoos. If you know my wife, she probably has a lot more tattoos than you realize. She has a lot of them, and I think they're beautiful, but that's my wife, and you're not allowed to think they're beautiful. Uh, but, you know, I don't think it's sinful necessarily to, to have a tattoo. I don't have that conviction-level belief. You know, I, I think a lot of the, the belief of whether tattoos are wrong or the verses of treating your body as a temple, which doesn't directly speak on tattoos or anything, like they just use that passage of scripture. Uh, and the Apocrypha, which is a book that the, the Catholics believe is part of the Bible, and we don't necessarily believe that. There's a book called Enoch, where they talk about this demon named Azazel who brings, you know, his idols to earth. And as to show that you're a prophet of Azazel, uh, you would tattoo yourself, essentially. And that a lot of people use that as a reason to not get tattoos. I do not have a biblical opinion on whether or not tattoos are right or wrong, probably in the same way that Paul is saying, listen, there's no such thing as idols. It's not necessarily sinful to eat this meat. But you might be persuading someone else to, to act in sin or ruin your testimony in some way, shape, or form. So I have no problem with any of you guys having tattoos. But if a member of my youth group, you know, and I'm their youth pastor, comes up to me and says, Brian, should I get a tattoo? I'm going to tell them no. You probably shouldn't because there are people who perceive them as wrong. And are you hurting potentially your testimony if you decide to get them? Probably. So that's, that's another good example of something Paul is saying, like, I don't necessarily think this is sinful, but I don't necessarily think you should do it either. Um, and then we've got a third group of people who have said, hey, I am not offering food to idols. I'm not eating food to idols. Look at me. I've wrote you this letter talking about Bob, who's going to these parties and eating this idol meat, but not me. And we kind of see Paul address that going further. 
Uh, and we can look at 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. It says, now about food sacrificing the idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know it. The, the struggle with people who think they're right or even know that they're right about something, is a lot of times they become really arrogant about that thing. Have you guys ever met someone who's an expert on something and they just come off as like just the most pretentious person to be around when they're talking about that thing? Yeah, I, I, I can think of a lot of people. Sometimes I'm that guy, unfortunately. Uh, but when you have a knowledge about something, it can turn you arrogant. And if you were saying, look at Bob, you know, look at me, I'm not doing this thing, and Bob's doing this thing, I'm better than Bob, you know, that, that's puffing yourself up. That's, that itself is, is wrong and sinful. So we can know whether something's right or wrong and maybe talk to Bob and say, hey, have you thought about how this might affect your spiritual walk and how it might affect your testimony? Or you can ask these questions that make yourself look puffed up and make yourself look good and make others look bad. And we see another example of that in a parable that Jesus spoke on, and it's Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, he also told us this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this, one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this passage of scripture, it's, it's pretty similar to a lot of us in Christian circles today. Look at me. I don't drink, I don't party, I don't have premarital sex, I waited till marriage, look how good I am, look how bad Bob is over here. And if, if you're using biblical teachings and biblical authority as a way to prop yourself up, as opposed to a way to help prop Bob up and make Bob a better person, that very thing in your life is an idol, and it's something that Paul addresses and Jesus Christ himself addresses. You know, whether or not eating idle meat or this thing in your life that isn't necessarily sinful is sinful or not, if you're not doing that thing and you're using that as a tool to display how you're living more godly or you're living more righteous than someone else as opposed to like, hey, going up to Bob and saying, have you thought about this walk? You know, you're, you're sinful as well. So that's the, the three groups of people. I, I just pray as you go throughout this week, you identify, are you are you any of those three people? Are you someone that is placing an idol in your life that's above God? Are you spending your time, your talent, your treasures, and your testimonies on, on things that benefit you? Um, or maybe you're the person, maybe, maybe I'm doing this thing that I don't find sinful, and maybe I'm not even personally convicted about, but maybe that's this thing in my life that could be hindering other people. I just pray that God would expose your heart to that, and you can open your eyes to it. And maybe you're like the third group of people of, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm not doing the wrong thing. You know, I'm, I'm out here doing it right, but the reason I'm doing it right is so I look better than Bob over there, and I can, I can go to sleep at night saying, well, at least I'm not the 
that guy doing all these wrong things or offering food to these idols, you know, that's still wrong too. If you look at the last passage of scripture before we pray, it's going to be 1 Corinthians 13. It says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. You might be that guy doing nothing wrong, but if you don't have love in your heart to, to help Bob and be there for Bob, and you got nothing. You know, we're going we're gonna to study 1 Corinthians 13 coming up in the future, but that's, you know, a, a verse you probably hear at every single wedding you've ever been to, and I definitely think it's true in this passage of Scripture. Uh, so let's close and pray. So, Father, we just thank you for, for Paul, and we thank you for your word. Uh, pray that if we have idols in our lives, that you would expose them, that you would remove the, the high places in the same way that even the things that you designed for good were, were taken. Uh, just pray that our hearts would be exposed to maybe of things that we don't necessarily realize are sinful and you know, maybe hurting our walk with God. Pray that you'd expose our hearts to that in the upcoming days and give us the, the power and ability to, to act on that and to be a better testimony giver. Uh, just pray that if we're following your commands for any type of self-benefit, that you would also expose our hearts to that. And just pray that we would learn to, to love one another better and bring people closer to you. In your name, amen.